I'm Ryan. And I'm Zach. And together we are functionally literate. Functionally. Functionally literate. Not right. illiterate. Not functional illiterate. There oh. are people that are functionally illiterate. That's true. We're trying to not be those people. No, we are literate. We can read. We read lots of books for this podcast. So yeah, so this is a book club podcast. Um, every episode we gather some books and we talk about them. Um, eventually we're going to do some long form where we're going to cover a few chapters an episode. But right now we're covering mythology. We That's have right. so far covered Greek, Norse, Celtic, Egyptian, and Hindu myths. Mm-hmm. Today, we are covering Buddhist myths. Buddhism. Yeah. The other great Indian religion. Yeah. Um, so for posterity, three episodes are out now. So the first Norse episode is out. Technically four episodes if we count the The intro. introduction. The belated yeah. introduction. That's right. But we put that out after the first couple episodes. But <laughs> We figured, this is a weird place to just jump in. We should... Do something about that. In the lineup, it's first. That's right. <laughs> um, so I want to, before we get started, I want to give credits at the beginning. Because I realize at the end of every episode, I'm giving credits. And it doesn't make for a fun-sounding outro with the outro music. Yeah, that's yeah, that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. So, uh, you know, I want to start with thanking Digistory Productions. They provided the majority of the equipment that we are using for this. Um, I want to thank Vidwest Studios for providing us uh, the space that we're using to record. We usually record it uh, in Zach's library at his house, but not today. We're recording at Vidwest. Mm-hmm. Today there's roofers. It's going to be loud there. Yeah. Not good. Not great. Um, I want to thank Chris, our sound technician. Um, I want to thank Jake Weller for our lovely intro and awesome outro music. music. So good. Yeah. It's just the best. Hey, who uh, who edits and produces this show? Me. Oh, thanks, I Ryan. do all that. You do that? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, man. Thanks, man. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> you like it? You think it sounds good? I do. I think it, it makes my voice tolerable. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we are on uh, Spotify. We are on Amazon Music, Audible, uh, Stitcher, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Samsung's app, which they just changed the name of it, so I don't know what it's I called. Know. I have a Samsung, but I use Google Podcasts. Right. So it's on there, too, if you want to uh, use that. Uh, it's on a few other things. Um, Radio Play, and I think something called Overcast. Also on something called Stitch In, I believe, is what it's called, which hypothetically makes this uh podcast listenable on your alexa if you say alexa play functionally literate hypothetically um theoretically rather you should be able to get your alexa to play this podcast so Hmm. nobody's gotten back to me on that yet so somebody out there listen to it on on your alexa and ask alexa to play see if that'll work that'd be pretty cool if it did yeah also we have another international viewer, listener rather, someone from India listened to our podcast. Oh, they're probably just tearing apart our Hindu. Oh, well, it's not out yet. It's not out yet. Man, when it does come out, they're going to be like, these idiots. <laughs> yeah. 
Sorry, man. So yeah, we got someone from Poland, someone from India. My friends from the UK still have not listened. I'm disappointed. Well, they they just didn't want to get lumped in with all the other strangers. So they're like, we're going to wait. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So we're going to get into it. Um, so I read, uh, the book I read was Buddhism, a very short introduction. It's a very small book. Uh, like it practically fits in my hand. Yeah, it does seem. A uh, quick read, though. That's good. Uh, yes, a very I, quick read. I love finding books like that it, because it's not a huge time commitment. No, it's less than 200 pages. So nice. that was nice. It's by a man called uh, Damien Keown. I also cracked open, but didn't get very far, Buddhisms, an introduction by John S. Strong. That is a much larger book. It's a much larger book that I um, skimmed. I did not... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and no, not, that that looks intense. And that's not uh, even get close. Yeah, um, much I, more information than that. Yeah, I will be using actually the same book that was my source for the Hindu uh, mythology, which is Myths of the Hindus and Buddhists by Ananda K. Kumaraswamy and Sister Nivedita. Excellent. Just that. That just that. I oh. didn't need anything else. They, Excellent. They cover everything pretty well. Okay. So the. First uh, chapter in this book is um, uh, it's called Buddhism and Elephants. So it from the beginning it tells this story of do you know the story of the blind man and the elephant? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it tells that story briefly. Which audience, if you're not familiar, there were some blind men who were asked to um, touch an elephant and. Uh, you know, identify it, right? right? So each blind man touched a different part of the elephant. One touched a trunk, one touched a tusks, one touched a leg, one touched a tail, one touched its side, that kind of thing. And they all came up with a different description for the elephant. And the whole point of the book telling that story was that, like the elephant, Buddhism is not any one thing. Um and so th- the reason why I'm mentioning it is because uh, in the chapter it discusses this Scottish fellow called uh, Ninian Smart, who he came up with a way to analyze religions. He said that there are seven dimensions or aspects to any religion. Hmm. And so uh, I'm going to list off what those aspects yeah. are. Practical <laughs> and ritual. Words. Voice cracked. Practical and ritual is the first one. Experiential and emotional is the second one. The third one is narrative and mythic. (laughs) Fourth one is doctrinal and philosophical. Fifth one is ethical and legal. Sixth one is social and institutional. And the seventh is material. So I wanted to mention this because I thought it was really interesting because... um, until relatively recently, Western society, when they were analyzing Buddhism, they were only analyzing it from the doctrinal and philosophical dimension, right? Mm-hmm. Because it was mostly Protestants that was analyzing Buddhism. And they, you know, heavily believe that their doctrine is the, uh, is the way to approach their religion. So that's the same right. way they approached other religions. Mm-hmm. But because doctrine isn't, really like i mean it's just one part of when you're talking about buddhist doctrine you're really just talking about the four truths yeah um which isn't a lot to go on 
yeah. with Buddhism. So for a while, uh, a lot of uh, what the Western society knew about Buddhism was very mysterious and mm-hmm. misunderstood. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it, it can be hard from a Christian perspective to relate the same way to texts from a different religion Mm -hmm. because in the christian mindset the bible is the literal word of god sure like that's it's divinely revealed divinely inspired whereas nobody's making these claims about about buddhist texts no one's saying like well the divine essence of the universe has put these words on paper for us and Mm -hmm. so when you're a christian and that's what that's how you relate to a religious text you kind of make this subconscious assumption that that's how everybody relates to their religious texts. So mm-hmm. That's why they would be like, well, let's study their doctrine because that's their word of God. And it's like, well, not, that's not, not really so. how they see it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so the reason, the main reason that I wanted to bring this up is because Mr. Smart's framework of analyzing religion, it's, it's, ma- it's recontextualized what you and I are doing. Mm-hmm. Like in a profound way, because what yeah. you and I have been doing is we've been approaching all of these religions from the narrative mythic dimension. Yeah. Which I found, like I thought was fascinating. It's like, oh, wow. Kind of, kind of being, um, what's the word? Philosophers ourselves? Yeah, well, I mean, all, so myth in general is philosophical. And yeah. there's, I don't, I don't, I'm not as prepared here because I didn't know you were going to bring this up, but uh, I read a lot of Joseph Campbell in preparation for doing this you did uh and joseph campbell says that there's four functions of myth Mm -hmm. i don't remember all four off the top of my head um but one of them is to impose and justify a specific social order Mm -hmm. which could be seen as a kind of philosophy so that that sort of goes in with that The, the narrative ties in with well this is why we do things or at least this is the story we tell to justify that we do things that way. And that helps, you know, bring up the next generation of people into understanding the social norms and why they do that. And then they fit into society better. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's just really cool. I thought, and I was like, okay, so what we're doing is we're analyzing religions through this narrative mythic mm-hmm. lens. Anyways, I, just, yeah. I thought it was cool reading it. It's like, wow. Yeah, we're we kind of accident into something that makes it seem like we're way smarter than we are. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're just reading cool stories. We're just reading cool stories. Because but... what we want to get to is nerdy books. <laughs> yeah. And so we accidentally undertook this scholarly effort. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even with the book that we decided to start reading, La Morte de Arthur. Like, yeah. I would argue that's a scholarly undertaking. Yeah, it's a classic. Like just like trying to make that into uh, something legible for people to understand. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Anyways, so um, the story that I'm going to tell is the story of, uh, you know, the Buddha's life. Um, mm-hmm. Broadly, generally speaking. The, the like, main life. There were many lives of, of the Buddha. The Buddha's last life, I should yeah. say. Yeah. So... Uh, before the Buddha was born, his mother, Queen Maya, had a dream that a white baby elephant entered her side. This dream was interpreted to mean that her son would be either a great emperor or a great religious leader. Mm-hmm. So shortly after this, uh, when her pregnancy neared its term, she journeyed home. That was the custom in ye old India. You go to the mm-hmm. to the 
to your hometown to give birth. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that it was a white baby elephant that entered her side because I believe one of the past lives of the Buddha was as a white elephant. Oh, that is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he had six tusks. Oh, that's cool. Like he was a he was a badass elephant. Bad, well, but he had to be white because he's pure because he's the Buddha. Well, but I mean, it was a past <laughs> life though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's the Buddha's pure in every life. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I see. So, um, along the journey, Maya and her escort, they reached a lovely grove, and it was in this lovely grove that she went into labor. So she didn't make it home. So what she did, she stood as she gave birth, and she was le- she leaned her hands on a sal tree. What kind of tree is that? Do you know? I do not know off the top of my head. Well... She leaned her. She leaned standing against this tree, mm-hmm. and supposedly the denizens of heaven came to watch. You know, it's not every day a Buddha's born. That's right. So the earth shook, and the gods delivered her baby, baby, and they bathed him in this instant and miraculous shower of water. And so once this baby was clean, it, he immediately stood up, took seven steps, and declared this would be the last time he would be born. So already a very impressive person. Or he's angry. He's like, I'm done with this shit. <laughs> Another thing that, that I, I guess I'd never known, and maybe I'm showing my ignorance here about this, but the Buddha is very similar in a lot of ways to Jesus. But in one way that, I mean, there's there's ties to, you know, all deific stories, and you can kind of link them all together with some sort of relation. But in that, you know, Jesus was Jewish. Yeah. And then there was a whole new religion founded on his life, which was Christianity. Yeah. Buddha was Hindu. Yeah. So all the Hindu gods still, still exist exists. within the mythos of Buddhism. Indeed. I didn't know that. Oh, okay. I was unaware. Yeah. And so then Buddhism comes around later because of the life of the Buddha, but it incorporates hinduism into it yeah so there's some concepts from hinduism that's lifted into buddhism like you know the concept of reincarnation Mm -hmm. karma um but then after buddhism became a thing there's a concept from buddhism that went back into hinduism which is dharma Mm -hmm. the hindus i think kind of bastardized it a little bit kind of used it as a way of justification to structure their society the way that they did in a the way functions of myth. The, in a way that wasn't uh, true to the Buddhist teachings. Yeah. Um, but you know, Someone yeah. misunderstood and manipulated religious tenets? Yeah. Crazy. Kind of happens a lot, doesn't it? Only in India. <laughs> um, anyways, this baby after declaring this would be the last time he was born, was named Siddhartha Gautama. What a terrifying thing for a baby to say. Right? This will be the last time I am born. Like he immediately comes out and he goes, never again. This is my last life. And it's like... I just thought my... my one, why are you talking? Yeah, that's why I would have thought my <laughs> why kid are you was talking? possessed. Yeah. But two, in a culture that believes in reincarnation, they're like, what are you talking about? This is not going to be the last time. Should It should not be the last time. You don't Stop. want it to be the last yeah, time. Yeah, that would be bad. That would be, yeah. So, um, unfortunately, a week later, his mother died. He was raised by his maternal aunt, Pajapati, who mm. became the second wife of his father, King Sudhodana. So, yeah, he just moved on to the next woman in the, in the family. 
Yeah. It, I mean, that could be a cultural thing. I don't know that much about could be. Indian I, marital, marital practices. I imagine he had a harem. It seems likely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, very little is, um, known about the Buddha's childhood other than he lived a life of luxury in his father's three mm-hmm. palaces. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a rich daddy. He sure did. His daddy was a king. Um, so yeah, not much was known, but it is, it is noted that he was a kind and thoughtful boy and he had latent psychic powers. The baby just keeps getting scarier. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they were late, so they, they weren't known. Yeah, 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 yeah. He had it psychic is... powers, but nobody knew. It's just this little dark phoenix running around. You're just like, uh-oh. Yeah. It's any minute, he's just going to snap. <laughs> so, yeah, he lived a very pampered, uh, spoiled, comfy life because his father knew about his late wife's dream mm-hmm. and he knew what it meant and he was terrified his son would become a religious leader instead of an emperor right yeah you know he's a prince Gautama right. is yeah he wants his his son to become king yeah. to succeed and, him. and as far as we know there's no there's no other heirs there's no siblings well certainly not from his first wife right so it's just him just so him. if he runs off to be a hermit Who's there to take his place when the king dies? I don't know. Narrative doesn't get into that. It's nobody. Yeah. But I think it's also narrative, narratively necessary that he has all of this luxury growing up. Mm-hmm. One, because then it makes the shock of him learning that that's not how everybody lives. Yeah. Way more stark. But when he then gives it up, there's there's consequence. There's stake to it. He's, you know, if, if he were born poor... Wouldn't really matter. What's he losing yeah. by going to be the hermit? Yeah. Nothing. No. Nah. But... Because of this upbringing, he loses everything. Yeah. Like, he could be... He literally loses everything. He was the king. He was going to get everything. And he's like, nah, I'm going to give that up. Uh, So, yeah. So, this is... uh, I'm going to get into the story of why he gave all that up. So, he... He grew into a young man um, with... You know, married with a son. uh, And... You know, continued to live this comfy, mm-hmm. pampered life in these three palaces, but he was restricted to the palaces, and understandably, uh, this was an unfulfilling life for him. Yeah, you know, like funny thing when you live only a lap of luxury, you get bored of that luxury. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to see the world outside the palace, but his and his king, it, the words, the king, who's a, a very doting father despite mm-hmm. restricting him to the household yeah um you know he acquiesced but he arranged that the city be clean and free mm-hmm. of all but healthy young commoners yes and he insisted like attractive young people yeah i want the streets swept i don't want a piece of garbage mm-hmm. you get all the old people you get all the poor people you get all the sick people you get them the fuck out of here that's right not for my son. And I don't want my son to be offended by their presence. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so Gautama, he, it was he was also told to remain in the chariot. Mm-hmm. You know, let his valet take him around. Yeah. Which you know, guided tour. Yeah. Just another way to control the narrative that mm-hmm. he's trying to create for yeah. his son. Yeah. He's uh, removing agency from his son. Yeah. So somehow, despite all of this. Um, Gautama saw an old man 
So I think in in my reading, it was specifically one of the gods was like, no, no, no. We're yeah. going to show you. Because yeah. they the gods know mm-hmm. that he's to be the Buddha. And mm-hmm. so they're like, well, we have to give him this experience. They arranged it to happen. And so, yeah. so one of the gods becomes an old man. Uh, so yeah, yeah. One of, one of the gods, it's unspecified, who arranged for this to happen. I'm guessing Indra. If I were to... Allege. I mean, Indra or Vishnu or Brahma... Probably one of those. One of those three. three. So he sees this old man and it disturbs him because he'd never seen an old man before. Mm-hmm. So he. Well, yeah, presumably the oldest man he'd ever seen was his father. Presumably. So yeah, he uh, he's disturbed by this. He tells his valet, "Take me back home," and he reflects on the reality of old age. Yeah. Well, because he's confused at first. He's like, "What the fuck is that?" Yeah. And his valet's like, "Well, that's an old guy." And he goes, "What do you mean an old guy?" And he goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. That happens to everybody." He goes, "Everybody?" He goes, "Mm-hmm. It's gonna happen to you too." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he was like, "Fuck, get me home. This is terrifying." So this was not his only outing. He went on other outings. <laughs> on his second outing, same scenario, right? Like, gotta control the narrative. Gotta yep. can't like just healthy people. But I, I assume it's actually even harsher and more strict because presumably the king knows well, that yeah. he saw the old guy and he's like, no, we can't have that fuck up again. Can't have that again. So I, I, in my mind, I'm envisioning like every time that this happens, the king is getting more desperate mm-hmm. to try to control it and is like more particular about who he's allowed to see. Yeah. And he's more particular about how clean everything has mm-hmm. to be and what mm-hmm. route he can take. But yeah, no. So on the second <laughs> outing. The gods arranged for Gautama to see a sick man. So he saw he saw someone going through the throes of sickness. And that disturbed him, too, because he'd never been sick before. Mm-hmm. He'd never seen anybody in his life sick before. You know, comfy palace life. There's no way you're going to get sick, yeah. most likely. Or if somebody does get sick, you're like, don't go near the prince. Yeah. yeah. You, you just send him to work in a different part of the palace. Right. So, you know, that disturbed him, too. He immediately goes back home to reflect on disease and sickness. Third outing, he saw a dead man getting buried. Yeah. Now that would be traumatic if if you you were not aware of death, that death existed. Yeah. Like as an adult man Uh with a wife and children, or I guess child, he only has the one, not aware that at some point your existence will cease. I mean, as a child, contemplating death is pretty scary. You know? Oh, yeah. What? And it's hard to. Mm-hmm. Like, you, it's just hard to fathom what that really means until you reach a certain, like, mental mm-hmm. acuity, I guess. So, yeah, as an adult learning about death, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, so, yeah, this obviously disturbed him as well. Immediately goes back home and yeah. reflects on the nature of death. Mm-hmm. On his fourth outing, he saw a religious mendicant, which is like a homeless traveling beggar. Mm -hmm. It was common during this time for uh, for people to become mendicants uh, for religious spiritual growth. Mm -hmm. So he sees he sees this mendicant and he realizes this is the solution. This is this is his inspiration. For like what he's gonna do with his yeah. life, he's like, "This is what I will do." There is a spiritual solution to this problem. There's a spiritual solution to age and sickness and death because he realized that not even the palace walls 
you know, because there's walls around this city. Yeah. Not even the palace's walls can prevent death. Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting that, and this is, I think, usually the case, that the call to religion in general is suffering. Hmm. If he had never experienced suffering, he never would have been religious. That's true. And even the way they're presented is it's first it's old age, then it's sickness, then it's death, and then it's religion. Yeah. They didn't introduce religion first because that, no, 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 no. that wouldn't have disturbed him. It would have been like, huh. It's it would have been confusing. You'd be like, what's this guy doing? He's, well, he's over there. He's meditating on the sufferings of the world. You'd be like, I have no frame of reference for this. What a silly man. And you would have moved on. <laughs> yeah. But now he knows all of the suffering, and then he sees that, and he goes, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I think that's generally the case with religions, although not exclusively, is that it's it's formulated after the conscious experience of suffering. Yeah. Hi, this is Functionally Literate. Hope you've been enjoying listening. This episode is brought to you by me. I made this show. I'm Ryan. I'm broke. If you could donate a little money my way with a sponsorship or a product, like, I'll be a shill for money. Um, and I'm going to use that money with which to buy books. Because let me tell you, right now I'm checking stuff out of the library, and it's rough. You can email me at funk.lit.pod at gmail.com. That is F-U-N-C dot L-I-T dot P-O-D at gmail.com. You could also be a patron of this podcast. That's right. This podcast, Functionally Literate, we're going places. We have a Patreon now. You can give me a dollar. And in exchange, you will be able to listen to this podcast ad-free. That means right now, you don't have to listen to this bit. You can listen to the podcast uninterrupted. It just goes without me going on about things that you don't care about. Just for a buck. And that will increase in value every two weeks because there will be another ad-free episode. Additionally, if you'd like to just pitch a little money my way, like you don't, you're not interested in being a patron, you can uh, go to my PayPal, which is also in there. I made a bunklet PayPal. It's a, it'll all be in the description. Links all, all the links in the description. So. Immediately upon coming to this realization, like, oh, I know what I'm going to do with my life. He packs up that night and he looks upon his sleeping wife and child and leaves. Yeah. And he becomes a traveling religious mendicant, mm -hmm. just like all those other men. Yeah. So this story, obviously, should not be taken literally. In reality, it is highly unlikely that the Buddha was this naive or... So quickly disillusioned with palace life after seeing three respective old, sick, and dead men. Um, metaphorically speaking, though, the palace walls are analogous to the mental barriers that we as human beings often put up to protect ourselves mm -hmm. from the realities of life. You know, we don't 
at every moment think about age and sickness mm-hmm. and death because those things right. tend to upset you, us. You think about them when you're presented with them. Right. And so that was so this is a metaphor for the Buddha being presented with those things mm-hmm. and then realizing what he has to do with his life. Yeah. So yeah, he he abandons uh, his former life, starts traveling. During his travels, he he met a man called Alara Kalama who taught him a form of meditation. The Buddha took to the practice so readily and perfected it so quickly that the man offered him joint leadership of his religious group. That's pretty fast. That is pretty fast. That's impressive. Very few cult leaders offer to take just... on a co-cult leader. <laughs> <laughs> Usually it's a one-man show. But he took to he took to his form of meditation which was like a sphere of nothingness. Mm-hmm which was very blissful and pleasant to Gautama. Yeah. You know, he really enjoyed it, but mm-hmm. it wasn't quite the solution <clears throat> to his problem. So he turned down this offer yeah. and, uh, you know, went on his way because the fundamental problems of life were still not addressed in his mind. Yeah. So he, you know, kept traveling. Eventually he meets another man, Udaka Rampaputa who taught him a different meditation technique that was like a sphere of neither perception or non-perception. So when he was in this state, consciousness seemed to almost disappear entirely. Mm -hmm. As before, he took to the meditation technique very quickly, very successfully. This man, Udaka, was so impressed with how quickly he took to the practice, Udaka wanted to become a disciple of Gautama. (laughs) Um, again, he refused because this state of consciousness, although awesome, was still not quite what he was looking for. And so he abandoned the idea of meditation entirely at this Mm -hmm. point. And he spent the next six years experimenting with extreme suppressions of the body. Yeah. Um, he developed a breathing technique that allowed him to hold his breath for really long periods of time. Like maybe a couple hours before needing to take another breath. Mm -hmm. All this served to do was give him headaches. He tried gradually reducing his food intake until he only needed to consume a spoonful of soup per day. But, you know, obviously that only made him emaciated, made his hair fall out, made him, you know, queasy all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, he gave up on that. And he did a bunch of other crazy stuff like that. Eventually realizing that extremes of the flesh in excess or moderation, either way was the wrong way to go. Mm -hmm. The proper way was a middle way. The middle way. The middle way. So what he started to do, you know, he started upping his food intake. He gave up on like this, like barely breathing thing. Mm -hmm. Um, He began... He realized the way to go is to satisfy your appetites in a moderate way. Careful not to overindulge or underindulge, mm-hmm. right? Like you still have to attend to your body's needs, but there's no need to be excessive about it. Right. And so it wasn't long after coming to this realization of the middle way that he attained enlightenment. He started practicing meditation again. And one night while facing east, 
sitting under a large tree, which would later become the known be known as the Bodhi tree mm-hmm. or uh, Ficus religiosus. That's thought, right. Which I thought was amusing. That is the that is the botanical name for that tree. That's an actual tree. That's an actual Ficus species of tree. Religiosus. In yeah. Okay. What's that look like? Uh I mean it's it's kind of a nondescript ficus, I think. I mean it looks like a lot of other ficuses to me. Oh, okay. But so nothing especially special. No. It's got an interesting sort of architecture to it. Like the form of it's pretty cool, but other than that. Now what I find interesting about this sort of path to enlightenment is that he makes a point to stop at every part of like the main practices of Hindu religious people. I mean, that's what's available to him. Right. Well, and and that specifically he does them and finds them unfulfilling. Mm -hmm. He tries the meditation. He goes, this is just not, it's not answering the questions. It's not solving the problems for me. He tries the ascetic practices, the self-denial, you know, the, the deprivation. And he's like, well, this isn't helping me either. Mm -hmm. And so, it it very succinctly like pokes holes in all of sort of the Hindu practices of like that doesn't work that doesn't work that doesn't work yeah so before you know he, he comes up with his own solution mm-hmm. which is you know Buddhism well anyway so he's sitting under this tree he's meditating again and this is when he attains enlightenment he acquired the ability to remember all of his past lives in full detail. He attained clairvoyant powers, which allowed him to see the good and evil in all things and knowledge of how many lives they had and how they would die, crap Mm -hmm. like that, or if they were dead currently. Mm -hmm. Um, And he attained the knowledge that he had rooted out of himself all cravings and ignorance once and for all. He had achieved nirvana in life. He stayed near the tree for seven weeks, pondering his future and what he should do with his life now that he's attained enlightenment. He considered becoming a teacher, but he had no idea how to even begin explaining nirvana to anyone. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, how could you? Yeah. He then considered becoming a hermit, you know, just, you know, living his life in solitude and just waiting until he died because killing himself was not the answer. Mm -hmm. And then after consulting with one of the Hindu gods, because one of the Hindu gods came to him and spoke with him about this, like, hey, you've attained enlightenment. Wow. Because not even gods attain enlightenment. Right. You know, that's not a thing that happens. Mm -hmm. He decided he would teach how to attain enlightenment rather than explain Enlightenment itself. Yeah. Right. Um, so these teachings are known as Dharma, like those teachings themselves. Mm-hmm. So I think it's interesting that Hinduism incorporated that, but I, it makes sense. Yeah. Well, I mean, these are two both like concurrently practiced religious traditions. Right. And they sort of fed off of each other, mm-hmm. culturally at least. Mm-hmm. So with his uh, newfound clairvoyance, he wanted <laughs> to reach back out to his old teachers, but with his newfound clairvoyance, he... Realized they were both dead. But his colleagues from those teachers were still alive. There was five of them. So he reached out to them. Um, and he gathered all five of them in this royal park meant for deer. Mm-hmm. And this is where he gave his first sermon. 
So now we're going to get into the mechanics of things, right? Because this is where he explains the mechanics of things. So in his first sermon, he told his colleagues of the four noble truths. So the first noble truth is dukkha, which is the truth of suffering. To live is to suffer physically and mentally. Suffering is a part of life. You will not stop suffering until you die. Mm -hmm. Buddhists take this a step further because roots of Buddhism are in Hinduism. Reincarnation is a very important part of Hinduism. You will die. You will be reborn through your ancestors. Therefore, you will suffer again. And you will suffer forever because Mm -hmm. you will be reborn forever. Right. And I mean, and what set him out on this path to begin with? Right. Seeing suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, so this isn't... Um, suffering's not quite the right word. The, the, a better word for it would be unsatisfactoriness. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, which, you know, his palace life shows. You know, he was given this wonderful, luxurious life all through his childhood and young adulthood. And... He got bored with it. He wasn't satisfied. He was not satisfied. But he wasn't suffering. Per se. Per se. But he wasn't satisfied. It the book talks about <clears throat> the concept of disease, which dis-ease. Mm-hmm. You know, it's baked yeah. into the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, it just means not working right. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to not do that. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's this um and I'm relating this to something that's a little bit out of left field. Go but, ahead. Uh Faust by Goth. Okay. There's a, a line, and I'm going to have to paraphrase because I don't know it off the top of my head verbatim, but uh, basically, Faust obviously makes a deal with the devil, Mephistopheles. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, when the devil's trying to prove that he is the devil to Faust, he's like, but I thought the devil could only be in hell. And Mephistopheles says, I've lived in heaven. If you don't think being anywhere else for me isn't hell, you don't understand heaven. And so that's what I think is the is, is kind of what they're getting at here, which is like it's not suffering in that it's actively painful or that it's this horrible experience, but that it's not as good as it could be. Right. And that's just part of life. Nothing is perfect. Mm-mm. It's not going to be. Couldn't be. The second noble truth is samudaya the truth of arising so in our lives we have cravings we desire things you know we crave sensual pleasures good food good music good sex comfy clothes etc right we crave existence you know our desire to be And we crave non-existence, which is the desire to destroy. This is often manifested by, like, negating, denying, or rejecting things that are unwelcome. Mm -hmm. When directed inward, this manifests itself as negative beliefs, like, I'm no good, or I'm stupid, I'm a failure, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. These cravings are why we are reborn, and therefore why we suffer, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, yeah, if if you didn't have a craving, then nothing could be disappointing, Mm -hmm. and then there would be no suffering. Mm -hmm. It's because you want things 
that you can't have them. I want a good book. Right. I want a good TV show. Yeah. And because you have an idea of what a good book and a good TV show is, inevitably, some of them will not measure up. Right. And that's going to upset you. Yeah. That's how it is. Yeah. If you didn't want things, life would be a lot easier. Now, it's important to note that um, this, it does not mean that all desires are wrong because mm-hmm. uh it's specifically it talks about desires right yeah. like you know we desire good food we desire good music we desire all of these things but desire is the wrong word um because in english desire it's it's a much more all-encompassing word mm-hmm. than the word that um is used in sanskrit which is tanha, which means perverted desire or desire that is excessive or mm-hmm. wrongly directed. This is commonly viewed as a triple-rooted evil. The three roots are greed, hatred, and delusion. These are things that all of us exhibit on some level. And there's another Sanskrit word for desire called chanda. Chanda would be positive desires, like wanting others to be happy or having positive goals for yourself and others. So just keep in mind when we're talking about the second truth, we're talking about negative desires, right? right? Like it is perfectly appropriate and encouraged for you to want positive things, positive desires for people. It's these negative desires of excess that are the problem. And the book gives a great example of this, in my opinion. Uh, Smoking. The desire to smoke a cigarette leads nowhere but the desire to smoke another cigarette, which will hasten your death, your non-existence. It's true. It's negative. Whereas the desire to quit smoking would be a positive desire because it would break the cycle of compulsive, compulsive smoking, and it would be an improvement to your overall health. That's true. I will say. As someone that smokes a pipe and cigars. Much better than cigarettes. Mm. And much less addictive. No nicotine. That's right. Yeah. So if you're going to smoke, if you're trying to quit cigarettes, I advise taking up cigars or pipe smoking. One, you're actually going to spend less money. I know that sounds weird, but you will. And two, that oral fixation thing gets taken care of, and that's the biggest hurdle with quitting smoking. That is the biggest hurdle because, like, it's just... So I'm going to get on a soapbox here. My hypocritical soapbox, because I also smoke. I don't smoke tobacco. I smoke marijuana. I smoke tobacco. (laughs) (laughs) So smokers out there, I know you think smoking helps you with your stress. It's actually the thing stressing you out. You just think it helps because you get momentary stress relief. But then you start craving those cigarettes again. And you stress out about it. You stress out about it. Okay, I'm going to get off my soapbox. All right, off the soapbox. Because the oral fixation is real. It is. You know, like like once you get into smoking, it's like, oh, man, I really love just the act of of inhaling and exhaling. Yep. Anyways, um, the third truth, Naroda, the truth of cessation. To attain nirvana, one must snuff out tanha in themselves. You have to put an end to greed, hatred, and delusion in in yourself to attain nirvana how does one attain nirvana that is the fourth noble truth maga the truth of the path or the way 
So in Buddhism, there is a noble eightfold path. Mm -hmm. There is a right view, a right resolve, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right meditation, and right mindfulness. So, what does that mean? I like that it's in this sort of easy-to-follow list where, like, one clearly follows from the last. Mm -hmm. Like, if you start with right view, you you have to start. That's sort of step one. And then it sort of it kind of goes through the steps. That's very convenient. So the right view means accept the Buddhist teachings and then one day confirm his teachings yourself through lived experience. Right? Like... Mm -hmm. When you're first learning about all this stuff, it's okay if you don't believe. Just accept what you're being told. Right resolve. Make a serious commitment to have a right or good attitude in life. You know, this sounds decent. Mm -hmm. Right speech. Tell the truth and speak in a thoughtful, sensitive way. Right action. Abstain from, quote-unquote, wrong bodily behavior, such as killing, stealing, drug use, or really any obsessive sensual pleasure. Like, mm -hmm. if you're obsessively seeking something out to satisfy a sensual urge, you know, you got five senses. Feeling, hearing, mm -hmm. seeing, tasting, smelling, you know. If you're seeking something out obsessively to satisfy one of those desires, stop that. Quit it. <laughs> um right livelihood that means don't engage in an occupation that would harm others now you might think that you are doing that now you might not be zach i think you're yeah. fine uh, it's it gets tough because as the world has gotten more complicated and interconnected mm -hmm. it's very difficult to know the the true consequences of any action. And this this is actually, if you've ever seen the show The Good Place. I love that show. This one is, of my favorites. This is one of the, the issues that, uh, I can't remember his name now, the ethics professor. Uh, Chidi. Chidi, that he runs into all the time, which is he, there's just no way. And I think it was like, I'm spoiling this for anyone that might want to watch it that hasn't. But That's a point. If you haven't seen The Good Place... Skip the next few minutes because we're going to get into huge spoilers yeah, it's, and it's such a good show. It's very, it's a very interesting show. Um, but you know, where they sort of, they start talking to like the judge of souls and they're like, look, there's no way mm -hmm. we can meet these requirements that you've put up because literally everything yeah. will at some point have a negative consequence. Even but I buying could... a bouquet of flowers. Right. And it's like, and I, but there's no way I could have known that. Mm-hmm. And I can't stop it even if I did. Like, the only option is to just die, basically. Because mm -hmm. even just being alive is going to negatively impact somebody. Yep. So, yeah, it's, I, it's very difficult to know if any one thing you're doing is 100% just positive. Yeah. You know, like, there's, I would say that there's a few moral truths that, like, you could you could stick to. That's like, those are those will never be negative. You mm -hmm. know, like, I'm going to love my wife. That in and of itself, that'll never be a negative. Right. Unless there's like some girl that really wants me to love her and then well, that's negative for her. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't think there is that person. Yeah. 
So for me, I I think of my last job, right? I was a FedEx delivery driver. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you wouldn't think that that would harm anybody, but it does. Um, like, if for no other reason than I am driving a gas-burning vehicle. Mm-hmm. I'm driving a vehicle that is slowly contributing to killing the planet. That's not right. That's not right, livelihood. So, I mean, if you really want to get split hairs, which, I mean, Buddhists do. You know, they try and live their lives in the most ethical way possible. Mm-hmm. Right effort. That means gain control of one's thoughts and cultivate positive states of mind. How do you do that? Right meditation. More on that later. And right mindfulness. Cultivate constant awareness. If you can approach these eight things in the right way, you can theoretically attain cessation of craving and therefore attain nirvana. A simpler way to think about this is uh, morality, meditation, wisdom. Seek to become a more moral person. Mm-hmm. Meditate every day. Become wiser. Learn things. And you will attain enlightenment. Theoretically. One day. Theoretically. Um, maybe not this life but you keep at it you know act like a buddha one day you'll become one Mm -hmm. so what is nirvana anyway we don't know (sighs) nirvana is the stillness of non-existence beyond duality so it can't even be called non-existence because that implies duality this is why the buddha struggled with like well how do i explain this because all words imply duality existence itself implies duality because where there is existence there must there must necessarily be on the other end of that spectrum Mm non-existence and that's why buddhism that's the middle way is we're not heading to either extreme we're going to stay right in between the dualities where they meet so the most literal interpretation of the word nirvana is quenching Mm -hmm. or blowing out so this is in reference to the craving specifically greed hatred and delusion A person's cravings are like a flame. Indulging those cravings is like fanning the flames. You know, you're giving them more fuel, more oxygen, encouraging this this cycle of birth, life, suffering, death, rebirth, you know. Mm -hmm. But if you stop feeding the fire, the flame blows out. Nirvana. That's why when you attain it, you will not be reborn again. There's no reason you would or could be. Mm Mm-hmm into what you were saying about like why the Buddha struggled to explain the concept of Nirvana. He had a really funny analogy explaining why it's pointless to try. Mm -hmm. So he said, asking about what Nirvana is, it's like if a man was shot with a poison tipped arrow and instead of trying to remove it, he asked for unhelpful information like who shot me? What was his name? Where did he go? How far away was he when he shot me? What kind of poison did he use? What kind of wood is the shaft made out of? Like, knowing the answers <laughs> to these questions doesn't help you attain nirvana. Yeah. It's pointless to ask. The important thing is attain it. Yeah. Because otherwise... You'll know when you get there. Just fucking get there. Like, you're you're suffering now, man. Like, asking yeah. what nirvana is, like, you wouldn't understand it anyways, even if he was able to explain yeah. it to you. Well, and, and that's sort of the... The terrible irony of it all is it's like, okay, well, nirvana is the lack of suffering. Mm -hmm. What does that feel like? 
you don't know because suffering is constant and inevitable. I think of Plato's allegory of the cave. You remember that one? Mm -hmm. So for the audience out there, the allegory is if all you have ever known is life in a dank, dark, hard, wet cave. And someone tells you, no, there's light out there. What's light? That yeah, sounds you, scary. You don't even know what it is. I don't even know what it is. It won't. It just wouldn't make sense to you. Mm-hmm. You'd be like, light? Like what? And then like, see all how everything in here is black? It'll be white out there because there's light. And they'll be like, what's what, white? What is that? What's black? What is this? These words you're using to delineate things don't exist to me. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So um, it just it just doesn't make sense. And that's that's sort of the uh the the real issue with basically all religion is that it inevitably leads to a point where the mortal human mind cannot accurately conceptualize what it is trying to communicate. Mm-hmm. Like it just can't make sense. Like in Christianity we have that issue with with the Trinity and like the the uh the personhood and divinity of Jesus, where he's definitely totally God. But he's also a person. But he's also definitely totally human. Yeah. And he's both of those at the same time. Mm -hmm. And you think, how the fuck can that be? And it's like, because he's got, like, that's all we can do is, well, because divine. And you don't know how that shit works because you're not. And you just can't. And so it's very difficult to explain because we don't have the frame of reference for it all. We'll be back and I'm going to talk about meditation. 